0: Well what the men uh, said in their prayers uh, for the table uh, was really good today. and um, I appreciate you men for for that. What Brother Jeff said about uh, Christ is something I think that that we forget and for sure is something that is uh, not talked about <clears throat> in evangelical circles. Uh, and what I'm referring to is that Jesus demonstrated, Uh, that it is possible to be faithful to God. Now, we know that he he did more than just be faithful. He was perfect, which was necessary uh, to what uh, Brother Andy said about him being the perfect sacrifice for sin. Uh, But we can be faithful, and that's something that we want to make sure that we're communicating not only to ourselves, because that's something that will come up on Judgment Day. It's, with, uh, it's why we are without excuse. According to Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, we we can be faithful to God, and uh, that is what He requires. Uh, it's something also that we want to make sure that we're communicating uh, to our children, is that this is possible. It is possible to, uh, to be faithful. And so we're thankful for both Christ's cleansing and the fact that He made it apparent that we... Uh, that we can uh, be faithful and that's uh, so important to his humanity. He was, as the scripture says, uh, fully human and tempted just as we are tempted and yet was faithful in all things. Well, that's not uh, what we're going to uh, spend our time focused on today. Uh, Rather, what I'd like to talk about with you uh, comes from Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn there. The title for this morning's Sermon is Enemies of the Cross. Enemies of the Cross. Enemies of the Cross. And the specific verses in chapter 3 that uh, we will spend our time uh, discussing are verses 17 through 19, Philippians chapter 3. Verses 17 through 19. Please follow along as I read those verses now in your hearing. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Let's pray now. The Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that. We not, not only have a place where we can come and freely worship you together, a place where you promise to be, to meet us in a special way. This is your house. We're told that in your word you do have a house on earth. But also that you have given to us certainty from your word. We can build our lives on that certainty, the certainty that comes from your word, from your scriptures. And as we take the time now to open again a text from that uh, inspired word, your scriptures, I pray, Father, that as your people, we would uh, give ourselves to not only hearing what is spoken, but, Father, immediately determining to submit our lives to it. Father, make it so we pray in Jesus' name. Well, what should be obvious from just a cursory reading of these verses is that being identified as an enemy of the cross of Christ is a bad thing. Hence the reason Paul then states in verse 19, their end is their destruction. In other words, those identified in this way come judgment day will suffer the eternal destruction of being thrown into the lake of fire or hell. What, however, may not be so obvious from what Paul says here in these verses is who it is that is receiving uh, this identification or who uh, this identification includes. And it includes believers. It includes believers. Or those who were at one time, or for a period of time, claiming to be followers Of Christ. Today we refer to those individuals as Christians. Hence the reason Paul relays such news with, as he says, tears. For those who genuinely love Christ, as Paul certainly did, it is hard to hear that many who also claim such love will one day betray Christ and become his enemies. And notice that is what the text says. Many, not few, many who claim to follow Christ now will end up betraying him later. We've known some of those people in this church. Those who started down the right path, loving and being faithful to Christ, but over time kept straying from that path further and further until eventually They were gone. They started as the friends and followers of Christ, but ended in the category of his enemies. And though I can assume that most, if not everybody, who is still part of this church doesn't want that to happen to them, the question is, do you know how to stop it? Which also means, do you know how it happens that you can't stop something unless you first know where it's coming from or what causes it. And so again, do you know how a Christian goes from being a Christ lover to one of his enemies? An enemy, as Paul says again, an enemy of the cross of Christ. Do you know what causes a person to end up on this downward spiral? Well, if not here 's the good news that is what Paul is attempting to address in these verses to educate us on how you become how you become an enemy of the cross, and how also then you prevent it or you stand firm against it. This he picks up or makes apparent by. Uh, what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. In other words, what I just got done saying is the way to do it. And four things represent then that way, the way to become an enemy, and their opposite, the way to uh, prevent it. Four things. Here is uh, the first Number one, you don't listen to, you don't listen to or seek to imitate your earthly shepherd or spiritual leader. This, in other words, is the, the first way you become an enemy of the cross of Christ. You don't listen to, you don't listen to, or seek to imitate, or seek to imitate. You don't listen to or seek to imitate your earthly shepherd. Your earthly shepherd. You don't listen to or seek to imitate your earthly shepherd or the other term I used spiritual leader. Once more, you don't listen to or seek to imitate your earthly shepherd or spiritual leader. After you have uh, written that down, if you would look again with me at the text, verse 17, brothers, join me, Paul says, in, in, or join, rather, in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. The fact that Paul mentioned others, those who walk according to the example that you have in us, means that he did not consider himself the only godly example to be followed. Who Paul specifically has in mind comes from what we see in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Putting your finger here then at uh, Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses uh, <clears throat> fourteen through nineteen, and again, this is uh, who I believe Paul has in mind here when he uh, uses uh, this phrase: "Those who walk according to the example you have uh, in us." Uh, verse fourteen, First Corinthians chapter four, verse fourteen. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Based on what Paul says here in these verses and connecting it then back Uh, to Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, The person that we should be listening to, who it is that Paul is speaking of again when he says, those who walk according to the example you have in us, Uh, the first person that we should be listening to or imitating as the means to our own godly imitation is our Father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, i.e., the shepherd who taught us through life indeed, the saving gospel message, and baptized us into Christ. And where am I getting that from? Well, that's how uh, Paul is uh, using that particular phrase there back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's uh, pretty apparent uh, based on what he says there. He's saying, I'm your father because I'm the one that baptized you uh, into Christ. I am the one that taught you by both word and deed the gospel. So again, plugging all of that or packing all of that back into what we uh, find here in Philippians 3, uh, that is the person or persons uh, that Paul is referring to uh, that needs to be imitated. Those, again, who have followed our example or the examples that you have in us. The shepherd who taught you the gospel. The shepherd who baptized you. That's the person that Paul is calling for you to imitate. And this, by the way, is not only something that Paul says here in these verses, uh, but the writer of Hebrew makes clear that God wants us to do. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Uh, You know the text, or should know the text. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 7. Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, most specifically here, those uh, who spoke to you the gospel, consider the outcome of their way of life. And again, here's our word imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Like God, the imitation of our earthly shepherd is to be in function, not form, is to be in function. Not form. It means discovering the principle guiding them versus simply looking at the superficial action itself. In function, not form. We talked about this. Up at the campground where I talked about what it means to be an imitator of God. And uh, imitating God is to be in function, not form. And so uh, here we see the same thing, or the same thing rather, is to be applied uh, when it comes to imitating our earthly shepherd. And uh, the difference between these two, let me give you an example. The difference between imitation by form uh, versus uh, function. Uh, Form. Uh, We do not have flying cars. We do not have flying cars. Uh, Function. We do have flying cars. We do have flying cars. We have means of transportation that include flight. We call them airplanes. One is an observation based on form. The other is an observation based on function or principle. Or principle. Most people live by form. Their entire life is lived by the imitation of form. And we call these kinds of people posers or parrots. Parrots rather than living by function, which makes you instead a pioneer and a pro in everything. There is a saying, he who discerns the principle discovers the power. He who discerns the principle discovers the power. In other words, you too now possess what is needed for success. That's what discerning the principle does. And discerning the principle is what it means to imitate function not form. Why then don't most people do this? Why do most people not uh, imitate of the function or the principle and instead uh, imitate form and become dummy posers and parrots? Why is that the case? Uh, Well, in the words of Elon Musk, a man who has uh, spoken about this very thing in his own life, his imitation of function or principle is the means by which uh, he operates Uh, he said this, and I quote, it takes more mental energy. Uh, To imitate uh, by function rather than form takes more uh, mental energy. Translation, people don't do it because they're lazy. (laughs) They think they have better things to do. Uh, So they settle uh, for uh, form uh, rather than function as uh, the way to uh, imitate. The first way, then, to prevent becoming an enemy of Christ, based on uh, what we read there in our verse, uh, using more mental energy to listen and imitate the function or principles not form being established through the teaching and behavior of your earthly shepherd. Using more mental energy to listen to and imitate the function or the principles, not the form, being established through the teaching and behavior of the earthly shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, so just 10 verses down from the one that we read just a moment ago, uh, says that you are to make your earthly shepherd's job a joy uh, because anything less than that would uh, not be advantageous for you. And uh, uh, it says also there the reason why it would not be advantageous for you, and that is because he will give an account of you to Jesus. Which means what? We've talked about this before. Uh, His approval of you matters to Jesus, letting you in to heaven. So just ask the question, who do you think he's uh, going to approve? Those who listened to and imitated him or those who didn't? Questions to determine where you currently stand as it relates to this. Questions for your own assessment. Questions to determine where you currently stand. On a scale of 1 to 10, where do you place the instruction or counsel pastor gives you based on its integration or assimilation in your life? So I don't want you to say, oh, I, I, I put it up there in, in, in the 10 category, but, but, it's, but it never becomes a part of your life. We're not talking about um, emotional reception here. We say, oh, I love what he says, but do you do do it? You see, there's a difference. The old old term that was used to describe uh, the former of these two is a sermon taster. You come in on Sunday mornings and you listen to the sermons and you love what you hear, but you leave no different. So again, the question as it relates to this first point How you avoid becoming, remember, this is all about avoiding becoming an enemy of the cross of Christ. On a scale of 1 to 10, where do you place that instruction? Some of you I've known over the years, and I've known you long enough to know that uh, you listen to what I have to say, and then you consider what it is that you want to implement and what it is that you don't. And so for you, I'm essentially a 2 as it relates to integration or assimilation. How much time, another question, how much time do you give to thinking about and attempting to discern the principles being established by the way your pastor behaves or responds to situation? It means asking this question. Why does pastor say or do what he does? Why? Not this is what he does, or these are the kinds of shoes he wears, so I'm going to wear those shoes too. See, that's the poser. Or, pastor says, that's the parrot. How about taking the time to say, why does maybe he wear those shoes? Why does he say those those things? What's the principle undergirding all of that? Lastly, for parents and husbands, for parents and husbands, do you manage your home the way pastor manages the church? Do you manage your home the way pastor manages the church? Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate them as well. Most especially, most specifically, as we saw, those who are your fathers in Christ Jesus. Do you ever ask the question, does my home... It is the way, as the leader of my home, parents, husbands, the way that you run your home, is? does it look like what you see in the church? The way that pastor manages the church. You say, no, it's different. And the question is, why? You say, well, I don't see the connection between these two things. Well, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, the church is the model for the home. Hence the reason that Paul says if you can't manage your household... That's the minor leagues. There's no way that you can operate in the majors, the church. You cannot manage the church, which tells us that that is the model for what you're to be doing in your home, which means you're to look to how pastor runs the church to understand how it is you need to be running your home. Are you doing that? give you some examples of what I'm talking about when I say that. How he talks to the congregation. I, 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 I'll never get over this. As a kid, this was a, was, a, was a part of the discipleship. And one of the things that I'm a, a, a incredibly grateful for, even though my parents were, weren't Christians, when we were being dummies, our parents told us we were being dummies. Our parents used derogatory language to speak to us when we deserved it. And somewhere in the mix between the time that I grew up to now, uh, this, this, this idea has come into the mix that if you do that, you're going to somehow destroy the psyche of your fragile child. And so I've even heard some of you say this. Oh, well, I would, I would never speak to them that way. Do you understand that when you, this is one of the most effective tools God uses in relation to us? And he expects us to use in relation to our children. Because when those derogatory terms are used, and they're fitting, by the way, we're not talking about slandering someone here. But when it's fitting, when you use that, it becomes a catalyst, a powerful catalyst for change. Because when I say, you idiot, nobody wants to be the idiot. That child wants to, be, to get as far away from what's being identified or why he's been being identified as the idiot. He wants to get as far away from that as he possibly can. Maybe someday we'll, we'll take the time to look at all the derogatory terms that are in the in, in the text of Scripture. You know, it's interesting to me, and I just said this last night. We were having a conversation about this. If you look at the Hebrew and the Greek, and, and this is where uh, the, the English translation does a disservice because, because that, that even in the literal translations, uh, that there are a lot of derogatory terms, meaning what we would call swear words today, that are used in both the Hebrew and the Greek. When you see all over the Proverbs that word "fool," uh, it's not the word "fool." That's that's too nice of a term. It's dummy. It's dipshit. It's idiot. That's literally the word. It is an offensive word. Meant to be a catalyst that motivates you and pushes you away from it. I don't want to be that. We've lost that. Well, You ask yourself, is that the way I speak to you in this church? Where do you think I get that from? Have you ever asked, what's the principle? Driving pastor to do that. Well, Well, now you know. But again, imitation. We're dealing with the issue, the issue of imitation. You, you want to you never be an enemy of the cross of Christ, then the first thing you need to understand is you need to imitate me, whether you like it or not. And for those of you running your home, how do you talk? How do you talk to your family? Is it congruent, is it consistent with what you see in the way that I talk to you in this church? How about how you dispense justice How does pastor dispense justice? Punishment shall fit the crime. It's not, well, today's Wednesday and I'm a little tired today, so we're not going to deal with it. Or I'm going to give you another warning. Can anybody show me where that's at in scripture? By the way, (laughs) how you dispense justice? What 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 the discipleship looks like after you dispense justice? By the way, you keep calling them the idiot until they become something other than that. How are you dispensing justice? How much time are you spend getting to know your families? You know how much time I've spent getting to know you. Are you taking that kind of time in discipleship, talking with them, to get to the root of the problem as part of discipleship? Cyprian, one of the church fathers, said it this way, I love it. If we know what made us fall, we can heal our wounds. It goes back to what I said in the introduction. you got to know what's causing it, and that takes time, and it's messy. It takes hours away from watching the boob tube or whatever else you had planned to do that night. It takes time to get to the bottom of things. And that's what it means, by the way, to love somebody. What are you thinking? I need to unpack this. I need to work through this. It takes that kind of time. Are you doing that? Are you imitating your earthly shepherd? Quote uh, from Ignatius. I find this interesting. I've told you about this, I believe, about him before. Uh, Ignatius is one of the earliest early church fathers, so early, as a matter of fact, that he was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. Keep this in mind based on what he says. This is a guy that was raised up and trained to be a pastor by the Apostle John himself, and he says this, this going back to the issue of imitation or dealing with the issue of imitation. Flee, therefore, and I quote from divisions, as the beginning of all evils, You must follow or imitate the bishop, the ordained pastor, as Jesus Christ followed or imitated the father. You think he just made that up? Nowhere do we find uh, that Ignatius was somehow uh, rogue or or separate, uh, 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 condemned by John or the church. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. And so here's the guy that was trained by John. What's the chances he got this from John? You must follow or imitate the bishop, the ordained pastor, as Jesus Christ followed or imitated the Father. Without this, no group can be called a church. Wow! That's what he said. So are you doing that? Are you doing that? Number two, how you, how you can also become an enemy of the cross of Christ. No, that's not where you started or where you wanted to end up. Number two, you refuse to accept that God's laws or requirements are non-negotiable. You refuse to accept that God's laws or requirements are non-negotiable. You refuse to accept God's laws are requirements are non-negotiable. back in our text verse eighteen, where we pick up this phrase "Enemies of the cross of christ that that phrase the cross of Christ," based on Paul's use of similar phrases elsewhere we Find in places like 1 Corinthians 18 the word of the cross, or in Colossians 1.20, his cross. Based on Paul's use of similar phrases elsewhere, Paul's purpose seems to be, when using these types of phrases, legal in nature, to emphasize that Jesus met the legal demands necessary to accomplish redemption, even when it cost him great suffering And death, as difficult as it was, Jesus accepted and submitted to God's requirements as non-negotiable. And as a result, he was highly exalted or honored by God, which is uh, what Paul speaks to in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 11. It says he became obedient to that to the point... To God's laws, to God's ways, to God's purpose, to the point of death. And because of that, God highly exalted him in his name above all names that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who therefore present themselves as the enemies of the cross are any and all who embrace a different philosophy when it comes to God's laws or requirements. They refuse to accept that God's laws or requirements are to be followed immediately, fully, and exactly according to what has been communicated, no matter how difficult or what it will cost us. These people instead convince themselves that there are other options or wiggle room, especially when it comes to salvation or justice. In essence, they create their own laws or requirements to replace those of God's. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, we have really the first recorded example of this. We know there was betrayal just prior to this, but uh, at least uh, sequentially going from the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 gives us the first record of that. In Satan's words to Eve, you will surely not die. God had promised that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And uh, what does Satan tell her? Well, God's laws are negotiable. There are other options. It's not just that you will die. There's other ways to deal with this. The second way then to prevent becoming an enemy of Christ, accept God's laws or ways as absolute and non-negotiable and build your life or safety upon such certainty. Accept them as absolute and non-negotiable, and build your life on that. What am I talking about? Well, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, where Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house upon the rock. There's safety in that. There's security, stability in that. In what? Taking God at his word. Maybe another way to just say it, right? We don't say, well, I know he said that, but I I think there may be another way. Questions then to determine where you currently stand as it relates to then this uh, second point. Questions to determine where you currently stand. Have you ever been guilty of committing a capital crime with an obstruction of justice multiplier? If you're that kind of a person, then you are a person that's guilty of this very thing. You refuse to accept that God's laws or requirements are non-negotiable. Because somewhere in that mix, after you committed that particular crime, uh, you convinced yourself that there that there might be another way, and so you held out. Maybe I can uh, uh, do enough good deeds or whatever it is to cleanse myself, so I don't have to. I don't have to come forward and confess it. You see, that's what I mean when I, I say that uh, you refuse to see that God's laws are absolute; they're non negotiable. And so why are you playing that game? And so often this happens. Somebody comes forward and it's like, you know, I did this or whatever. And you confess it. And you say, okay, well, how long ago was it? And it's always two weeks. What were you doing? Sitting out like an egg waiting for it to hatch? I mean, what's the deal here? I know what the deal is. I know what's going through your, your mind. Your mind is filled with, well, maybe there's a way. Maybe I can wait. What you're really saying is... I will surely not die. There's another option. I can negotiate this. And the thing you miss, the thing you you fail to understand is God doesn't negotiate with terrorists and that's what you become. You do what God says. And when you break his law, you do what God says you do in relation to breaking his law. It's non-negotiable. And until you get that, until you embrace that, uh, you are on the path, you are on the downward spiral that ends in becoming an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. Have you ever tried to convince yourself that you don't have to immediately seek justice when you sin or obey when it's difficult? Why didn't you do it? It was hard. So hard that you uh, sweat drops of blood. You resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Hebrews chapter 12. That hard? By those two uh, texts that I just gave you, Luke 22 and Hebrews chapter 12, you know what uh, scripture, you know what God's telling you? Don't even open your mouth that way unless that's the case unless you've resisted to the point of shedding your own blood or you have sweated drops of blood don't even go there because what you're doing by going there is you're, you're telling God listen uh, there's got to be another way which means what God's given to us here is really not law in your mind it's suggestions advice God says it's law it means it's not negotiable you do what he says and if you don't You're on the downward spiral. You're becoming, whether you know it or not, you're becoming the enemy of the cross of Christ. Number three. Number three. Third way you do this is you can't say no to food or hunger. You can't say no to food or hunger. You can't say no to food or hunger. hunger. Look at verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly. That phrase, their God is their belly, is an an ancient idiom or way of referring to a person who shows more faithfulness to eating than they do everything or anyone else. It's a person whose life demonstrates little to no self-control when it comes to refusing or saying no to food or hunger. They are devoted eaters who rarely, if ever, turn down the opportunity to indulge their appetite. Which means in a very real sense, their belly is their God. Since whatever we are most devoted to is what we most live for, and what we most live for is what we most worship, and is, by definition, our God. Here then is... What makes this so serious or a factor in relation to becoming Christ's enemy? Such people are not only idolaters, but also people who are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly vulnerable to other temptations of the flesh. Especially those which are even stronger than the desire to satisfy our bellies. Let me give you the perfect example. Sexual temptation. Sexual temptation. If you can't say no to food, there is no way you'll ever stand against the wiles of sexual pleasure. You are a person controlled, whether you like it or not, by your feelings or your emotions. And you demonstrate that all the time by your inability to stop shoving things in your mouth. And rather than be ashamed of that, Rather than be ashamed of that, these people love or glory in it. As Paul continues, and they glory in their shame. Their God is their belly and they glory in that. Meaning, this shameful state of serving their bellies. Third way then to prevent becoming an enemy of Christ... Confess your overeating as idolatry. Confess your overeating as idolatry. It's a moral problem. <laughs> Hate it as sin. Stop loving it and die to it. In other words, get control over your emotions and your feelings. And you say, Well, I don't, I don't think that's what it is. I don't think it's related to my emotions or my feelings. Well, uh, I'll pick that up in this first question as the way to determine where you currently stand. How to assess whether you fit in this particular box or category, which means you're on that downward spiral. Questions to determine where you currently stand. Are you overweight due to the fact that you constantly overeat? Are always eating or always eating calorie-rich junk? And here's my support for this and what I said uh, earlier, that this is an emotional uh, problem, uh, that your emotions or your feelings control you. In 2013 and 14, studies showed that two out of every three Americans are overweight. In 20 or in uh, 2009, uh, a study demonstrated that over 90, and listen to me when I say this, over 97% of these individuals who are overweight, uh, that n- over 90% of the time this is due strictly to one thing and one thing only, overeating overeating Beloved, listen to me when I say this that's, that means it's an emotional problem you don't need to eat the food but you eat it anyway it's a problem that means it's your flesh that's in control not you it's pleasure that you serve not God it is your belly that you serve not God what is your mood another way to assess this what is your mood or attitude if you can't eat this way If you have to say no to food and uh, uh, eating this kind of stuff, what's your mood? Do you get angry? Do you get upset? You say, well, that's not me. I'm not that person. Well, what's your attitude if it's taken away? Is food or getting to eat the thing that most preoccupies the majority of your thoughts in a given day? You essentially live to the next meal or the next piece of food. It's all you think about is, uh, when's the next chance you get to eat? If that's the case, then your God is your, your belly. Uh, here's another way to ask it, or another question that uh, could be asked to determine whether you fit in this category. Are you mad right now because I'm talking about this subject? My answer to you would be, I'm not ultimately the one that's talking about it. God is. They are enemies again. Look with me, beloved, again at the text. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction for that. Their God is their belly. That's God saying that. Finally, number four. The fourth thing that uh, Paul points to and hopefully, parents, you're thinking about this in relation to your kids. You're saying, do they fit into any of these categories? Because if they do, then, then I'm responsible for that to, to make sure they get off that particular downward spiral, that particular path, that will eventually make them the enemies of the cross of Christ. Number four, and uh, this most assuredly applies to kids. I, I would say, as a matter of fact, th- points three and four are tied to a lot of kids. <laughs> Especially when they come forth from the womb. They come forth, as uh, the scripture says, speaking lies. And it's the job of the parent to, 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 to through the rod to drive that from them. And this fourth point fits uh, along with the third in this respect to children. You worry, you worry more about missing out on worldly things than missing out on heaven. You worry more about missing out on worldly things than missing out on heaven. You worry more about missing out on worldly things. You worry more about missing out on worldly things than missing out on heaven. You worry more about missing out. This is the FOMO. Fear of missing out on worldly things than missing out on heaven. One more time. You worry more about missing out on worldly things than missing out on heaven, the end there verse nineteen, their end is the destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, like the first point, Paul speaks in a similar fashion elsewhere. I'm speaking most specifically of Colossians 3.2 where we have the command or the imperative set your mind on the things above not the things on earth. In both cases the key word not to miss is uh, this word set. It is the same word used by Jesus in his harsh, harsh rebuke of Peter in Mark chapter 8 verse 33. Uh, you know the text. Uh, we talked about it several weeks ago. Get behind me Satan. You are not setting your mind. On the things of God, but on the interests of man. It refers to what a person is most concerned with, or most worried about. The threat or danger they are most trying to escape. The threat or danger they are most trying to escape. With respect to those who become enemies of the cross of Christ, that concern or worry is, as Paul says, related to earthly things. In other words, their time and their energy is spent making sure that they don't miss out on the desirable things of this world or this life. But that's not all. That's not what ultimately makes it condemning. They act this way while giving none or very little energy to securing heavenly things or heaven itself. They treat salvation or the relationship with Christ as a given, as we would say already in the bag, as something that doesn't require such energy or time to secure, Missing out on heaven is not a real concern or danger, at least not enough to preoccupy their life with. They're like the Jews that John the Baptist rebukes in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. There he says to the Jews, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, i.e., our eternal destiny is a given for the children of Abraham. That's already in the bag. We don't need to spend very much time uh, trying to secure that. That's already there. It's already secure. This is the reason Paul calls the Thessalonians to excel still more in their efforts to please and serve God, because he knew that the threats to the spiritual state were still very real and dangerous, especially especially those related to sexual sin. Looking at that text, 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul says this, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and we urge you, literally we beg you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and well. That you, more, you excel still more, as I think how the uh, New American Standard has it. So you're doing it, but... This is where your concern needs to be still more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. that Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is, is an avenger And all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. What is the point that Paul is making there when he says God is the avenger in all things? Well, that he is the one who will spiritually or eternally require it of you. No getting away without serious spiritual or eternal damage, in other words. If our eternal destinies or salvation were so secure... Hardly would the Apostle Paul speak this way. Hardly would he tell this group of Christians, Excel still more. There's a danger out there, there's a threat out there. It's very real. Hardly would Paul speak the way he does earlier uh, in our letter. In Philippians chapter 3, look at verses 12 through 15 as it relates to himself. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it yet my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind in straining. Here's that idea of agonizomai that Jesus talks about in Luke 12. Agonizomai. Agonizing, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So even Paul, as it related to his own life, this was his thinking. Hardly was it, that's already in the bag. I've come to Christ, my salvation uh, is secure. Instead, going back even to chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live, we sing it today, uh, for me to live is Christ. Pleasing or serving Him is where I spend, Paul is saying. The majority of my time and energy, that is what I'm concerned with doing. Heaven is not yet in the bag. The principle then, not to miss. The principle not to miss, we are always more concerned or more involved and give more attention to anything that is not as safe or secure as we would like it to be. Let me just say it again, the principle is this, we are always more concerned or more involved and give more attention to anything that is not as safe or secure as we would like it to be. And uh, I say we are always that way because that's always the case. When you don't feel secure or safe about something, you spend a lot of time trying to shore that up. That's just human nature and that's a a good thing. The problem isn't there, it's just what you're spending your time attempting to shore up and what it is that you don't worry about. A recent study in regard to physical health bears this out. Uh, What was discovered in this particular study, I heard it just this week, it was so interesting, uh, and it made the point that I'm attempting to make here. Uh, What they found was, they did this study on infectious diseases, where these particular diseases were the most rampant. And what they found was this correlation between where uh, infectious diseases were the most rampant, there you also found the most authoritarian governments. And so uh, the places where uh, there's real danger of being infected We're also the places where the governments were the most involved uh, involved in minding or making sure that the people were minding uh, the rules. And so the same principle, where things are not safe and secure, there also we find greater involvement and attention to the rules, which once more uh, needs to be the case when it comes to our salvation or getting to heaven. We are not yet there, and there are many, many dangers, infectious diseases. Not physically, but spiritually. Uh, to knock us off course. And worrying about missing out on the things of this world is a, is a big one. It, it represents the biggest threat. You spend all your time worrying about that stuff, and the one thing you don't worry about is the thing you most should be worried about. Missing out on heaven. Hence the reason for Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, 19 and 20. Uh, and he says it very clearly. Do not lay up treasures on earth. Notice he doesn't say, uh, spend a little time there, manage your time, just make sure you're doing the other. He just says, don't worry about it. As a matter of fact, by verse 33, he says just that, don't worry about it. Father knows that you need these things, seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about it. Don't have a concern for that. Instead, lay up treasures in heaven. In other words, the worry or the focus needs to be on getting to heaven. We are not yet And this really goes back to where we started, right? Uh, Many start out as followers and friends of Christ, devoted, faithful followers of Christ, and yet where they end up is not where they started. They end up as enemies of the cross of Christ. The The fourth way, then, to prevent becoming this, an enemy, according to Paul, of the cross of Christ, the fourth way, is to worry about missing out of heaven more than the things of this world. You genuinely need to worry about that. And again, going back to that uh, very interesting study on infectious diseases. When you're worried about something, you'll give yourself to it. I talked about this in a, a young church related to the issue of the fear of God. The thing that you fear the most is the thing that you will be most committed to. And that's this principle. It's exactly this principle. And the thing you need to be most fearful of is that you're going to miss out on heaven and you will receive the wrath of God. Don't treat your Christianity as, well, that's in the bag. That's already there. The thing I need to be worried about is all these other things. Clearly, that wasn't the mindset of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23-27 through 27 says that. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And he ends that by saying, I beat my body and I do this so that I myself will not be disqualified. Paul worried about getting to heaven. And it wasn't until his final letter, literally or essentially on his deathbed, Paul writes these words at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought, past tense, the good fight. There is now laid up for me a crown. This is a guy who's who's now facing death. He knows it's over. He's run the race. He's finished. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Questions then to determine where you currently stand. As it relates to this fourth and final point. Questions to determine where you currently stand. Here's the first. Since becoming a Christian since becoming a Christian, has your involvement with the church or in the things of God, has your involvement with the church or in the things of God increased or diminished over time? See, because I would say if it's uh, diminished, then uh, you, 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 you no longer have a healthy worry. And as you learn more, that should increase. Not go away. And so what is it? If we were to graph, you know, were you the kind of person that started out and did, you were always there? Anytime there was something going on with the people of God, you were there. You were always there. You, you always involved yourself. You were that kind of a person. And, and, and now, because of whatever, and I've seen this, either because of discipline or, or maybe discipline in relation to your family. Maybe your kid went apostate. Now all of a sudden you're cool. And everybody knows it. Now all of a sudden you're not the same person you were before. Even though you tell everybody you are, you're not the same person. And the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is telling you that. That, that what you were red hot on fire for Christ is now weight. You see, that to me is a clear sign that you, you don't worry like you, you used to. You don't have a healthy concern. You think somehow it's in the bag. Or maybe you just don't care anymore and you want to go to hell. You're good being an enemy of the cross of Christ. Something's got to change if that's the case. Another question. How much of your brain on a daily basis is given to thinking about what is pleasing to God or how to better please Him with your life? See, that should be every day. Every day. Every day, my thoughts. I'm talking about myself here. Now, every day I'm thinking about Okay, Lord, when I, when I say the Lord's Prayer, I, I always end it. Uh, you, you're, you know that the, for yours is the power, the glory, and the kingdom forever and ever. And uh, Lord, get me safely home to that kingdom. And uh, and, and that's what I'm thinking about. I, I, I got to fight another good fight today. I got to keep on going. Keep on, As long as I'm here, I got to keep on going. For me to live as Christ, when I die, that's my gain. Keep on going. Keep that, That's the constant thought. I'm preoccupied with that thought. Is that what it is for you, or is it preoccupied with worldly things. Does that mean I don't, I don't think about worldly things? I, I do, but again, what, what preoccupies? How much time? In either of the two categories. You young people, where is it? And I'm sorry, I will apologize, because the problem may be your parents. You don't see it in your parents. Well, understand another day, mommy and daddy ain't going to be standing next to you, and you won't be able to blame it on them. You need to hear what God says. Where's your concern? How much of your day is spent pondering what you've learned or read in God's word and once more determining how it applies to your life or helps you become a better image bearer for God? We talked about this at the campground. We talked about what it means to be an image bearer and when I said this is a this change the way that you read your Bible, this being God's self-disclosure, he is the one that we are to, uh, to be reflecting or copying uh, in our function and so it's his self-disclosure that we use to do that, which means when I read it I say, okay, what's the principle... That's being established. Uh, what is it telling me about how God acts? And we talked about some of that. I give you some examples of that, like the fact that God responds in kind. And so as I, as I read God's word, I, I'm reading it in that way. Are you doing that? How do you read your Bible? See, this is very much related uh, to this, uh, this fourth pitfall, if you will. What is your mind set on Being successful. Being great in heaven. Or being great on earth. What are you. Deep down. What are you deep down. Most worried about. You need to ask that question. What is your greatest fear. What are you most worried about. Losing. Closing challenge, not contemplation today, but challenge. I want to challenge all of you to re-listen to this sermon, to re-listen to it, and to make sure that you understand all the points and to make it your mission, your mission, to not become an enemy of Christ according to what we've just learned. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could talk about these things and how timely it is in light of uh, some of the recent disciplines. Father, I pray that uh, your people would take it to heart. And most of all, the parents in this church, as I talked about, it's time to grow up. It's time to step up to the responsibilities you've given us. And uh, courage is not about the fear that we feel before going into battle. Courage is the fact that we know how to ignore that fear and go into battle. I pray that that would be so for every parent in this church with their children. They would not let that fear and the selfishness that drives it drive them away from saying the hard things to their kids and to being what you've called us to be so that their kids do not become the enemies of the cross of Christ. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.